This morning, we are going to finish 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We have two verses left, but I'm going to send almost the whole class on the first one of the two. And I'm going to focus it a little bit topically today, both here and in, in our sermon. And the focus today is going to be on sanctification. Since I wrote my last CIC article um, about what's wrong with this whole spiritual disciplines thing, I've gotten a lot of interesting feedback, okay? And for, you know, actually people say they like the article, but here's the question that they have. They say, I like your article, I can see your point, but exactly how do we get sanctified? You know, what, what, are we, what am I supposed to do? All right, they want, you know, how, how, how does this work? And so then I've been writing various responses to people about the means of grace, and I still don't think we get that concept. So I want to give it another shot today. <laughs> and the better you understand something, the more compact you can say it. Okay? So in the Sunday school class, we're going to talk about the spirit and the flesh. We have a list here that's almost... Verbatim, the list of the works of the flesh uh, from Galatians. And then we'll, we'll go there and look up the work of the Spirit, the walking in the Spirit. And then I asked Ryan to be here for sure today because he wrote an article on walking in the Spirit that we have published some years ago. And I'm hoping we can really get this concept. It's, it's very important for us to know how exactly God's going to sanctify us. So let's, but before we do that, let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your gracious work of salvation that brought us in to fellowship with you. And Lord, we also understand that sanctification is a gracious work. But Lord, help us grow in our understanding and grow in our uh, walking in the Spirit and avoiding the works of the flesh. We need help. And we need help to understand exactly how the Bible teaches us about this. So we ask for wisdom and understanding. We pray for the scattered flock that listens in around the world. Lord, sanctify them in the truth as Jesus prayed, Thy word is truth, and bring them into fellowship. We thank you, Lord, for another Sunday together, and we give this time into your hands and ask that you graciously work in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, how does God sanctify those he saves? Let's look at 2 Corinthians 12.20 and see what sanctification doesn't look like. Okay, here's what Paul said. Now remember, he wants them to repent before he gets there so he doesn't have to have another ugly confrontation. I've been going over the background stuff. The, the, the big difficulty in teaching Second Corinthians is that so much of it has to be reconstructed between the lines because of things that went on between Paul, correspondence that we don't have, and we have to find out what the issues are. But here's what he says now that he's concerned about might happen when he gets there finally for his third visit. For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish. Let me stop right there. Here's what he's worried about. They don't, they don't really wish him to come and do church discipline and rebuke them and treat them severely because of their sin. That, that would be what they don't wish. 
what he doesn't wish is to find them living in sin. All right. Then, continuing on, not what you wish, that perhaps there may be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. Now, that is pretty much what a fleshly group would look like. Do churches ever get that way? Oh, yeah. They do. They do. I, what's that? <laughs> they start out that way, he says. <laughs> well, they, they're certainly over the, um, I know when I was in Bible college, one of the teachers I had that I was such a beloved man, Reverend William Snow, he taught pastoral theology, which was basically how not, how not to muck everything up when you're in the ministry. <laughs> And he had a lot of wisdom from his many years of experience. And he told story after story of stuff he'd seen in churches that were just horrible things that uh, tear churches apart, tear families apart, uh, sorrow, misery, fleshly. Uh, I witnessed it myself. Uh, in, when I was in Bible college, I was traveling down to work in a church, and there was a pastor who uh, was an evangelist, really, um, and he preached evangelistically every Sunday and was very good at preaching evangelistically. Well, some of the people that have been there for years decided they didn't like him. So they were doing everything they could to make life miserable for this pastor, who I got to know quite well. And he was a godly man who was preaching the gospel. But they were just making him miserable. And the church had some sort of a thing in their bylaws to try to motivate the pastor, whereby his salary was set by the percentage of how much tithes came in. Okay, which is really not a good idea. And so, in order to because in order to punish him, the, some of the people in the church were giving all of their money to missionaries and nothing to the church to try to dr- drain the church coffers so this pastor wouldn't get paid. And what they were mad about was he was preaching the gospel, and they wanted. Uh, I don't know of something something other than that. He, I would admit he was more of an evangelist than a teacher, but there's nothing wrong with that because Timothy was told do the work of an evangelist, and the gospel's not going to hurt a Christian. All right, and uh, he was very good at preaching, and he was a singer and a piano player, and he's just a great guy. Well, anyhow, the point is that church had this sort of stuff going on. Now, I let's go down this list, and then we're going to go over and look at. Galatians 5 and talk about how we can avoid this. Now, I'm not saying this to accuse people in our congregation of being like this because, frankly, I, I, I'm so blessed by how the people are. I, I, God has sanctified our congregation, but we need to beware. Any one of us could fall into this. Yes? As fleshly beings, there would be times where we would have one or more okay. of these feelings as Christians mm-hmm. in a good, solid church. Yes. And it's through sanctification and it's through prayer that we overcome those things. So I don't think that, you know, it's not like we would never have those it's feelings. It's all, all or nothing. Yeah, it's yeah. not like that. Okay, good point. I totally agree with you, Brian. This isn't an all or nothing thing, and we can have any one of these fleshly attributes show up 
in our own hearts at any time and in any place. The most likely place for them to show up is at home. <laughs> no, which is true. Now, why is that? Well, because, because I, we mentioned this before, we're all trained to, to go out in public and put our best foot forward, which is a good thing to do. And so then you go to work, and if you acted like that, you'd lose your job, so you've got to be happy and smile and take care of the customers. And so if you're ever going to have a fleshly thing going on, it usually jumps out at home. So, which isn't really fair to the family, is it? But that's why we need to practice walking in the Spirit. As God sanctifies us, eventually, by God's grace, there's less and less of these outbursts or these type of things we're going to see here. And there's more grace, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, those sort of things. That's what sanctification looks like. That's how you can tell sanctification is happening. All right? Now, I want to go down the list. I actually took these all out of my uh, Greek word one by one by one. I'm going to tell you what each one means. Right? The first one here, the New American Standard, translates it to be uh, strife. Eris in the Greek, and according to the dictionary of the biblical languages with their semantic domains, that means dissension, conflict. Yes. The, uh, 1220, the, the list of uh, strife. 1220. Second Corinthians 1220, I'm going down the strife list, or the... Vice, vice lists. Paul has these elsewhere. They're called vice lists. You see them in Romans 1. You see them in a number of places where this, 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 all these bad things. And uh, in any one of these cases, a vice list in the New Testament isn't meant to be a comprehensive description of every possible sin that anybody could do. They're not comprehensive. They are illustrative. In other words, this is what sin looks like, okay? And these vice lists would give you the kind of idea, this is what you need to avoid. And if you're like this, and and you're always like this, then you have to question your salvation, right? Maybe you're not really converted. If you aren't always like this, and sometimes you have the love, joy, peace, and sometimes the strife, well, then that sanctification is progressive. Okay, now the first one here is dissension, conflict, quarrel is another way to to translate it, to speak discord, and so on. Now there's a lot of overlap in these words, okay? The second one, zealous, where we get our words zealous, but here in a negative sense, it's translated jealousy, and it can either have a positive or negative connotation depending on the context. If it was a positive one, it would be de- deeply devoted zeal. But here, since it's in a vice list, it's obviously not positive. So then it comes to the second meaning here, jealousy, envy, resentment, fierce raging. So this would be a very strong feeling that would be focused on not liking what somebody else has or does or whatever. And it's not something that we want, obviously. The third one, uh, which is translated in the New American Standard, 
angry tempers, thumos, which is a typical, that's a very common Greek word for anger. And this uh, dictionary of semantic domains says, in some contexts, it means fury, wrath, anger, rage. And that would be the sort of thing that he is talking about here. Sometimes we, it's pretty clear to us that we need a work of grace. Sometimes, for whatever reason, a person just gets set on edge. All right? And and I I bet you've experienced this, (laughs) where you're going through a day and you think, if everything goes perfect, I might make it. But if one thing, if somebody says one wrong thing to me, I'm going to take your head off. Do you ever get that feeling on the inside? That only me. <laughs> well, I, I, I have to report by God's grace that it happens rarely now, but when I was younger, it was pretty common where I get that. Or I just was something is going to yell at skateboarders. <laughs> In our old building, they wanted to turn their front steps into their skateboard park. Yeah, I know. You know, I got a lot more sanctified when we just sold that building. Sometimes, sometimes just change the location just changes your whole attitude. <laughs> All right, the next one, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> disputes. Disputes. Now, this is, a, I think, a, a better translation probably would be selfish ambition. Erethea. And selfish ambition. And a dispute here implies a rivalry. And, and that happens, that can happen in churches where you get rival uh, parties that are battling one another. Now, some, it's not always bad. I mean, it's always bad if it has to come to this. But it's not bad that you have a party that's standing for gospel preaching and Bible teaching. If they end up being a faction because they want what God always wants for every church, then they are the church. Because people that are opposed to the gospel being preached and opposed to the teaching of the Word of God are not Christians. You can't tell me you're a Christian and you get a hostile feeling in your heart when you hear the gospel. Okay? I think there's an awful lot of false converts. Absolutely. And sometimes people have a mixed marriage and they don't know it. If you, Let me just say something about that. The, if you go somewhere, happen to be visiting a church for whatever reason, if you go somewhere and whatever else happens in the church, but they preach the gospel from the pulpit, they make it clear who Jesus is and the, the work of God, the work of grace that God did on the cross, the reason we need to repent and believe the gospel, that's part of the church service. But maybe there's other things you don't like that, you know, there could be, it's a liturgical church, maybe you don't like that, or whatever. But you wouldn't get angry, would you? If you go and hear the gospel preached, and if you love Jesus, you have to rejoice. 
Paul could even rejoice when somebody preached the gospel out of selfish ambition. Right? All right. So I saw, hear stories about people coming here and walking out angry. Now, I'm not saying people need to like us or they don't need to like our service. They don't need to like me as a preacher. They don't need to like the music. They, they may not like the location. There's all kinds of things you, you, you don't have to like. But we did preach the gospel. So I can go to a church and hear the gospel when they do a lot of things I wouldn't care for, but I don't go out of there angry. I go out of there rejoicing that I heard the gospel. And if you can't rejoice that you heard the gospel, even if you don't want to go to the church, you've got to question your own conversion. Then you, you really need to question it. How can I be angry about hearing the gospel if I'm a Christian? You have to rejoice in that much, just that much. The gospel's preached. Nevertheless, uh, you get these factions. And, but I'll tell you what's a really bad thing is when the factions happen over something that's not a gospel issue. Then you've got problems in the church. If you have factions that are going at odds with each other based on being angry about how they're going to de- decorate or how they're going to stripe the parking lot or you know, who's on the deacon board and who isn't or whatever, that's a serious sign of a carnal church. A Corinthian-type thing with serious sin, serious problems. Because if the gospel's preached, then we can just leave some of these other things for somebody else to decide. Selfish ambition is sort of a, a, a feeling that I have to be in charge and I have to be making the decisions and things have to go my way. But Paul said if somebody preached the gospel out of selfish ambition, at least he'd rejoice the gospel's preached. So that shows you how important the gospel is. Okay, now, um, slanders. Slanders. Interesting word in the Greek, katalalia, which means evil speech, defamation or evil speech. Purposely slandering someone in order to discredit them in uh, using some false pretense. That's a very wicked thing. In fact, that's what the devil does. That's his job. Then the next word here, I think it says gossip. Gossip. Yeah, gossip. Let's talk about that one. There's one that a lot of times we just think is such a big deal. Uh, The word in the Greek is whispering. (laughs) Whispering. Gossip spoken in low tones and whispers. Do you want to hear this one? You know about so-and-so? And gossip is a harmful thing because, in a sense, it's trying to discredit a member of the body of Christ. And even if it's based on something that's true, it's not helpful, it's not constructive. If if one of us, it says in Matthew 18, if any among you, you know, if someone sins, we should go to them and talk to them and try to win our brother. I'm going to talk about that in my sermon. I have another passage like that. That if if if, uh, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Well, that's fine. That's not gossip. Not at all. But gossip is when you're telling somebody else so and so's this way. You know, isn't that bad? And then no no one's really trying to help the person with their sanctification. Does that make sense? 
It's something that we've got to be very careful about. I'm not saying we can't know things about one another, about our needs and stuff, but the person, we should be, we, we should be aware if somebody wants something as a prayer list or not. Okay? If someone keeps, wants whatever it is they're going through kept private, that's their prerogative. Okay? So when somebody calls in a prayer request, which is fine, and that's not gossip, but if somebody ends up having some sort of a medical thing and they land in the hospital, it's not gossip to call Carl and tell him because it's his job to know those things because we're supposed to take care of the people that went to the hospital. But when they call Carl, I believe what we should do, and I think we do follow this policy, and I've told Karen this, ask them if they want to be on the prayer list. Just ask. Because some people like to keep their, the things that they're going through private. All right? But just be aware that we will have Carl made aware of anybody that has a medical thing that lands them in the hospital. Because we're responsible to take care of the sheep. Okay? And, but if you don't want the thing on the public prayer list, then we won't put it there. Anybody want to have anything to say about that? You know, I always heard when, you know, you talk about this gossip, because I know it's destroyed a lot of people in a lot of churches, you know, and broken them up. And one of the things that I heard years ago, and, and you may agree with this, that if someone comes up and says something to you, I usually ask them, is it okay if I can go back and tell that person that you told me uh, what you're telling me? And usually it stops right there. Because oh. it's not nothing that's edifying or uplifting. <laughs> I see. That's a good. That's good common sense, Larry. That's real good common sense. Okay, so that's whispers. Like the old, I think a gossip reminds me of that stupid old hee-haw show I watched when I was a kid. <laughs> they were out putting the wash on the line, and then and they were singing this song, and it says, uh, uh, "You'll never find us repeating gossip, so you better listen the first time." <laughs> I gotta admit, when I was a teenager, I watched that show. It was a dumb show, but it. Roy Clark. Real highbrow stuff. Listen the first time. Alright, the next vice here is it's arrogance. And it's fusiosis. I don't know if it's a real common word. I think this may be the only place it's found in the New Testament. But it means pride or arrogance. And then disturbances is rebellion, disorderly insurrection, riot, disorder, and so on. So those are the things that um, would indicate that there's a serious lack of sanctification happening if that's what Paul got there and found in the church. Now let's turn over to Galatians 5. I don't want to just talk about these vices. I want to talk about the alternative and then maybe feel some questions. And I, Ryan can, has written on this. And, and in fact, you are writing on it right now, aren't you? you got a book you're working on? Yeah. So maybe he's got some insights that can help us. It says uh, here in Galatians chapter 5, let's start with verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
But when you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Now, let's stop right there. Let's put to rest a false doctrine that has been around for centuries, and that is the idea of Christian perfection, Christian perfectionism. Uh, there are those that teach that, once, that a true Christian doesn't have a sinful nature. Oh, you should... <laughs> How come everybody's laughing? <laughs> oh, we're all quite sure we do. <laughs> okay, so um, that's just obviously not taking into account what it says right here. This passage, what does it say? It's talking to Christians. And it says, uh, where did I say that? Flesh versus spirit. Where was I? Oh, 17. For the flesh says it's desire against the spirit. Now here, spirit, capital S is correct. It's talking about not the human spirit, but the Holy Spirit, I believe. Did you, did you see it that way? Or is that how you read it? So therefore, obviously he's talking about Christians because the the Holy Spirit doesn't indwell non-Christians, does he? No. So whoever here has the Holy Spirit also has the flesh, and the two are in opposition. There's a conflict. Those who teach perfection say that Romans 7 is not Paul after he was saved, but Paul before he was saved. But they're flat out wrong because if you read Romans in the order that it goes, it all makes good sense. There's a logic to it. You know, you have the basis of our imputed righteousness in Romans 5, practical outworking of it in Romans 6, present your members as servants of righteousness, and then you have the conflict in Romans 7. Okay, I thought I was presenting my members, but wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And so I have the things I want to do, I don't do. I'm, I'm not so good at presenting my members and then Romans 8 gives us the, the answer is that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. The Holy Spirit who indwells us is going to carry us. The word lead there means to bring or carry. And that God is going to finish his work and will never be separated from his love. And it gives us encouragement and hope. So in that sequence, you can't take all of a sudden Romans 7 is talking about being a non-Christian. It's just not feasible. And it's not a plausible interpretation. So here, all Christians have the flesh and the spirit. All. Everyone. And you're not going to get rid of this issue until the resurrection. All right? But if, but if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evidence. Now, we have a vice list again, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. A lot of these are the same words that we just read in 2 Corinthians 20. Envying, drunkenness, crowsings, and things like these. Notice things like these shows that it's not a comprehensive list. It's just illustrative. There could be other works of the flesh. Things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice those who practice such things. People that have the Holy Spirit have the flesh, have a conflict. The conflict is between the flesh and the spirit. The people who don't have the Holy Spirit, really, 
have a lot less of a conflict going on. You know why? Because they're not trying to get rid of the flesh. <laughs> they're just saying, this is the way I ought to be. Where can I find more flesh? You know, on these raucous things and all that stuff, like you'd see at a college campus or a frat party and what have you, they're just reveling in the flesh. But then, if you're in that kind of situation, you get saved, all of a sudden now you've got a conflict. Because now you don't want to be like that. But the tendency is still there. That's the conflict. So, those who practice the things are not even trying to get delivered. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, now here's what it's like when the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us and we're walking in the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Doesn't the King James say mortified? Yes, and that's where the old doctrine of mortification comes from, this word right here. Somebody emailed me just the other day and says, okay, how, do I, how does mortification happen? So I shared my response with Ryan. But how, how does that happen? Well, you could take that verse here, have crucified the flesh, and it's just a little, it's just a little um, snapshot. The big picture is on in Romans 6. Okay? If you just took that idea and then went to Romans 6 and read the whole chapter, you got a fuller explanation. The first thing that Paul points to is, our, is the fact that we were baptized. He assumes that all Christians have been baptized, by the way. It wasn't an optional. Means of grace. Are any means of grace ordained in the Bible optional? Yes or no? We're all saying no. Okay? Therefore, we need to put ourselves under the means of grace. So Paul starts in Romans 6 by talking about that we are buried with Christ and raised in newness of life. So why is it important to be baptized, and why is it important that baptism is done by immersion? Because otherwise you're breaking the type. Paul wants to be able to, for these Christians, point back to that so that they can remember, hey, I buried that old man. You know, when he starts rearing his ugly head, you have to have a point of, to look back to, and um, it's a point of remembrance. Paul is calling them to remember. I, I was, wasn't here, but Carl taught about remembrance in the Lord's Supper. Both of those ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are important for several reasons, one of which is remembrance. Because our baptism as believers gives us reason to remember that we were crucified with Christ. Yeah, yes, okay, um, Ryan. And I think you see the same idea in Colossians. Well, you know what's interesting, just thinking about that, how, how, the, the, how baptism and the Lord's Supper are related. In the Lord's Supper, we, we remember and we look forward. We remember that, that Christ died for sins once and for all, and we're looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Yes. In baptism, there's also a sign of, of remembrance and looking forward. Remembrance that we were buried with Christ 
in, in the likeness of his death. Yes. And if, if we read on, it says, surely we will be like him in the likeness of his resurrection. So not only wow. that, we're looking back and we're looking forward to the fact that in the same way we, we've been buried with him through baptism, we will be like him in the newness of life. When, at the, at so the, we're looking forward to the resurrection. Do you think that he gives the Stuart Reading Award? <laughs> <laughs> Free coffee. That's the prize. <laughs> no, that's a great reading. That's a great reading. And it really helps tie it together. We have to keep going over these things. I, I, I'm not bored with this topic. And as long as I keep getting more emails on this than about any other topic, I want to keep going over it until we got it and it makes sense and it's cemented into our hearts and minds. And we're confident. We need to know that what we're doing is what God is going to bless. We need to know that there's hope that if we follow the path that God has put us on and, 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 the, and we're following the signposts of the Bible lays out for us, that that path is leading us to glory. And in the meantime, we're being sanctified. We need to know that because if we don't know that, we'll be suckers, so to speak. Well, is that a bad way to say it? We'll, we'll be naive concerning these false claims when somebody comes along with this new secret to sanctification, new secret experience. You know, walk the labyrinth or do, uh, go to these, join a monastery or go to this retreat where everybody's going to get in an altered state of consciousness, and they're promising sanctification. And people get sucked into it because they haven't been trained on the true promises of God based uh, that are attached to what he's ordained okay they don't they don't know they think baptism is just sort of an initiation thing that we did and so okay we're done with that but if you if you read the new testament paul asked people about their baptism to make a point in the present remember in first Corinthians 15 he does that right you were baptized colossians 2 he does that you are baptized. Romans 6, he does it. So it has a present application of both remembrance and, as Ryan very astutely pointed out, hope, because Christ was raised. Symbolically, we are in baptism. In reality, we're looking forward to being the resurrection, which Romans 8 says is the ultimate resolution of the flesh, the flesh problem. So, um, so how do you mortify the flesh? Well, the first thing you do is you believe that if you believe the gospel is to go bury it. <laughs> I'm going back to Romans six. Be baptized so that you have something to look back to. Secondly, then you begin to understand the implications of the fact that you're crucified with Christ. There's implications. There, as we've said before, in the Bible, when you do hermeneutics. There's one meaning, but many implications. And what Paul does is he brings out implications of the fact we were crucified with Christ in Romans 6. What are some of those implications? Anybody want to venture? What are the implications that we're crucified with Christ? From Romans 6. Just remember if you remember Romans 6. Over here, uh, okay. What's an implication? We're dead to the power of sin. We, don't, we no longer have to obey. Yep. And uh, we're free to obey. Yep. That we're, we're, we're no longer enslaved. We're no longer 
Sin is no longer our master. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's an implication. Paul brings it around and he just says it in so many words. We're not slaves to sin. We do not, do not have to serve sin because we died to it. And another implication is now that we're freed from that master, we can be devoted to another, right? Yeah, we can be a slave to God. We can be servants of God. An implication Paul brings out in Romans 6 is, is our mem- he talks about our members, okay, our body and, and everything about us. We can present ourselves to God to serve righteousness. Present ourselves to God to serve righteousness. So this mortification is not a higher order experience, but it's a living out of one you've already had, that you were crucified with Christ. And raised as a new creature in Christ. Yes. Implications of being a new creature in Christ. You know what? Just a lot of the stuff that we're talking about right now is really just in, totally encapsulated at the end of Colossians 2 and throughout yes. Colossians chapter 3. Mm-hmm. And Eric will be unpacking these things verse by verse as we get through them. But just kind of a thumbnail sketch here. If you look at the end of Colossians 2, Paul talks about what we shouldn't do. How it's talking about the mortification of the flesh here. And he says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit to such decrees as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and the teachings of men? These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. And here's the the summary, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Pause right there. Pause right there. That right there tells us to stay away from spiritual disciplines. Right there. That's all you need to know. What does it say there? Somebody was challenging me about that, not in a bad way, but just to make sure. Actually, it was Patrick. You know how he does that? I'm not convinced. (laughs) He's a show-me guy. You've got to prove it. Patrick says, prove it. So I wrote him like two pages. Nope, I'm not convinced. Prove it. So I'm writing him a page. Well, it's getting better. Prove it. So I finally wrote him, God bless him, I appreciate Patrick, because this is very helpful for me. Finally, we got it down to a soundbite, because that's when you know it. The soundbite is this one in Colossians, self-made religion. That's all you need to know right there. Self-made religion. What does that mean? It's some person made up their own process that they claim will result in spirituality. All right? So I wrote that article. I talked about journaling. That's self-made religion. Okay? If you want to journal, because that's how you, what you want to do, fine, but don't make any spiritual claims. As soon as you attach claims... Then you're saying you can be sanctified by self-made religion. What's wrong with contemplative prayer? Self-made religion. What's wrong with having a, a labyrinth? That I don't know that I ever pronounce that right. I just, you know what I do? I change how I pronounce it every time so one of them is right. <laughs> Somebody sent me a link to a dictionary thing that says it right. I think you just say labyrinth. Is that right? Labyrinth. I think it's labyrinth. 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 Okay, everybody out there. Three syllables. 
Labyrinth. The maze, yeah. yeah. Prayer maze. Thank God for synonyms. <laughs> you put one of those things in the church basement and the people walk around there and then they get in the middle and then they're closer to God. What is that? Self-made religion. Any practice that somebody claims will make you closer to God or sanctify you that's not ordained in the Bible falls under that one term, self-made religion. Now, what, as he read this, as Ryan read that, notice he said that these things, to be sure, have the appearance of wisdom. Why do these books on spiritual disciplines sell so many? Because they have the appearance of religion. Why does purpose-driven life sell so many? It has the appearance of wisdom. Why does, uh, which is another one of those, his book is just full of self-made religion. Do this, do this, do this. No, I don't have to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm just kind of rebellious when it comes to somebody making a religious claim that doesn't come from the Bible. I don't submit to it. And he says, it says right in there, commands us not to submit to it. Don't let them act as your judge. Don't submit to it. It's a self-made religion. And that, uh, finally, Patrick and I, and it was very helpful. I appreciate Patrick, and he's very astute student. He, we decided that's how you deal with it, right there, that simple phrase. Is this self-made or is it God-ordained? If it's self-made, it has no sanctifying properties. So then, yes. with that established, okay. all then goes with the therefore. Yeah, okay. Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep thinking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the God. Set your mind on the, th- on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with mm-hmm. Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. So, this is all that we're talking about been buried with Christ, or we've been uh, with baptism. It's very uh, indicative or going back to what we read in Romans chapter yeah, 6. Yeah, very same idea. We've been crucified with Christ. We've died with Him. But we're also raised with Him. Yes. We are, uh, through, through faith. So, the, the things that uh, Paul is telling us to do here is to keep our, keep our minds fixed on Christ and remembering that we've died with Him and looking forward to the fact that we will be raised with Him. And that's why communion is a means of grace. Yeah. Exactly. That's why baptism is a means of grace, because it does that for us. It reminds us that we died, and it promises that we'll be raised. Exactly. And then we get, you know, consider the earthly members of your body dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, and abundance of idolatry, another vice list. For it is because of these things the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, lay them all aside wrath, anger, malice, slander, abuse of speech, self familiar. Yep. Yep. Uh, do not lie to one another. And then we go on to uh, put on the new self who is being renewed into the true knowledge. Renewal, which in the, and then he goes on to, so as the chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, and patience, bearing with one another. So very similar to what we read. So That's walking in the Spirit. That's walking in the Spirit. And uh, what's interesting is right after that, the, the way, <laughs> uh, the shorthand here, um, and you've, if you've been here, for any amount of time, you've probably heard either Bob or myself talk about this, but we believe the means of grace are probably best uh, encapsulated in uh, Acts 2.42 yes. and, and going before, because baptism is, is spoken of right before that. Mm-hmm. After he preached the gospel, as many as believed were baptized, and then yes. they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And out there, the apostles' teaching is the teaching of the new covenant. It yes. wasn't just the teaching of the law here. 
Yeah. This is the teaching of the fulfilled work of Christ, Amen. which the law is part of because the law points to Christ. So you have the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. And prayer, amen. And so breaking of bread there we understand to be communion. To be communion. And communion is a part of fellowship as, as we would... Uh, we would understand that communion is a... Uh, we see that in 1 Corinthians. It's we a fellowship it. meal. It's a fellowship That's meal. That's why it was such a sin when they messed it up in Corinth, because they excluded some. Yep. So here's what I want to show you. What's very interesting in Colossians 3 is as we keep reading here, right after this, he says, put on these things, and he commands us to put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule into your hearts in which you were called into one body. So that's speaking of preserving... The purity of fellowship there. You are called into one body, so let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, collectively. Mm-hmm. So this speaking of, make sure you guys are in fellowship. Don't, not letting these schisms divide, because fellowship is a means of grace. That very next verse, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell within you richly, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and spiritual. These are commands. And finally, if we go down to chapter uh, 4, verse 2, again, a command, devote yourselves to prayer, (laughs) keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at all times, and the same time for us as well, that God will open up to to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. So here we have fellowship, prayer, and the word of Christ all commanded in the wake of him saying, this is, okay, you don't do this. These are the things you do to okay. it. And thereby, by doing these things, we walk by the Spirit, and thus we are conformed, sanctified, conformed to the image of Christ. Amen. That's why I asked Ryan to be here. I know he'd get excited about this. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. So, it's all there. Now, this is what people don't get. All right. In every one of these cases, Paul starts by reminding us of what's already true. You died. And Christ is at the right hand of God. Reminds me of Hebrews. We're talking about that a lot there. So here's Christ in his mediatorial role as the intercessor and high priest who's there as our advocate in heaven. And so we, how do you, so somebody says, how do you mortify the flesh? Paul's answer is, remember that you died. Okay? Go back to what Christ already did for you. Go back to his death, burial, resurrection. Go back to your own baptism and remind yourself that you died and you buried the old man. And you might think, well, what, what good is that going to do? It makes all the good in the world because it's living a life of faith in the promises of God. That the very God who sent Christ to die for my sins who died for me in order to give me his imputed righteousness and avert God's wrath against sins, who was bodily raised before witnesses, is our proof that God is going to finish the work, that he's going to conform us to the image of Christ, that we will be raised, we will be perfected, and our unity will be perfected as well with all of the saints through all of the ages. And these uh, signposts of remembrance that were ordained by God is how we keep that in front of us. We go to communion, we remember. And so Paul is telling us to remember that you're crucified, and the way you live it out is by the means of grace, as Ryan showed, Acts 2.42, is basically reiterated point by point in Colossians 3. And the other thing is, remember what the Holy Spirit has promised to do, and Jesus told us this, that he will come and he will glorify me. Mm -hmm. So the Spirit glorifies Christ. So when we engage 
in the Word of God, what we're doing, even when we, when we read Genesis to Revelation, we're fixing our eyes on the promise, the person, the words, the work of Jesus Christ. So these things are fixing our eyes on Jesus. Same with prayer. When we go before our Father in prayer, we're going with Him as our intercessor. Amen. In fellowship, what do we gather around? We gather around the Word. We talk about what we're doing right now. We talk about the faith delivered once and for all. And we talk about our King, Jesus, constantly reminding each other, encouraging one another Amen. to continue. And same with baptism. We've already talked about baptism. It points to the person and work of Christ. And uh, uh, the, obviously the Lord's Supper points to the person and the work of Christ, what he has done and what he will do. So right. this is all Christ-centered activities. <laughs> well, that's why, uh, your, uh, over here, that's why sometimes I think of the, the leper that didn't want to go dip in a Jordan. Yeah. Well, for him, at that point, that was a means of grace because God ordained it. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. If God ordains a simple thing, do it. <laughs> Who said that? <laughs> Whoever it is, good for you, Jim. God ordains a simple thing. Don't sit around and think, well, can't you think of something more exciting than taking the Lord's Supper? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, as I was reading what you guys were talking you know, about, is it really any surprise that these people are falling into vice? I mean, if you take the gospel out, if you take communion out, if you take baptism out, that's what you're left with. Hmm. Because if you don't read the rule book, you're going to break all the rules. <laughs> here's a, here's a, that's a good uh, point. Thank you. Some, some may say this. Now, we don't advocate ever antinomianism, being against the law. The law is, is very beneficial. Now, the question would be, why are all these vice lists found in, like, in Romans, Colossians, Second Corinthians? There's lots of vice lists. Well, we need to be informed about what pleases God and what doesn't. Okay, and we need to know what sin looks like so that when it shows up, we start taking assessment about our walking in the Spirit. So just, it's just sort of like a picture. This is what it looks like when you're walking in the flesh. And so these things start showing up, and we, whether it's in my life or in a, a corporate life of a church, then we start saying, okay, where do we get off track? Because we're crucified with Christ, and this is not what walking in the Spirit looks like. And when you do, you, getting back on track is going right back to what Christ did for us and what God ordained for us. And so we take our stand on this issue of means of grace. Um, somebody says, well, maybe you need a synonym for that because it sounds too Lutheran. <laughs> well... Somebody suggested agents conveying grace, sanctifying practices. But, you know, when there's a theological term that's already been in use for hundreds of years, it makes more sense to use it if it isn't totally poison. And I don't think it's poison because it, you, you look at some of the theology, systematic theologies in the 20th century, some of them don't even have means of grace in the index. Because the whole thing came totally off of the church's radar screen in America because we turned ourselves over to the Colossians 2 and about, starting in about 1860 uh, uh, with Finney, with Finney's New Measures, 1860. Then you had these denominations that are committed to these false teachings, uh, holiness denominations. Every one of them is committed in their constitution to a false teaching which is some secondary experience that's going to sanctify you beyond what ordinary Christians have. 
Having grace in the, in the term, I think, is good because that reminds us that we aren't doing these things. It isn't Not by works. our works doing these things. It's we engage in these things because they are God's ordained means. Yes. And thereby, through these things, by his grace, he sanctifies us. It's not us sanctifying ourselves because we don't have that power. The only one who can <laughs> sanctify us is God. Amen. Good. I think we're finally getting this. We, the last time we did this, Dick said, I don't think we got it. Remember that? We're getting less fuzzy all the time. Now, the promise of God. That's another thing that when we were doing radio and going through Hebrews, we're still doing that. And that idea really popped into my mind because it, it emphasizes the idea of the promise. Paul does also in Romans. Faith needs an object. Okay? Faith isn't a force. Unlike the word of faith people say, faith isn't some entity in the universe. Faith is belief in. Belief in. What's the belief in? The object. The answer is God and his promises. Abraham believed the promise and he took action. And even when he took Isaac, he was believing the promise. So he received him back in type as from the dead. Now, the reason for means of grace is that, they, that there are promises attached to them because they were ordained by God. So God says, if you come to me in the means that I've told you to, I will meet you. All right? Well, because that's true, now we can come in faith. I really can't walk that maze <laughs> uh, in faith because there's no promise. There's absolutely no promise. And so all of these spiritual disciplines that aren't found in the Bible are sanctification by works, not by faith. Because there's nothing to put faith in. You can't obligate God to meet you by, through a practice that he never ordained. This is where the Reformation departed from Rome and said, no, Scripture alone. Scripture alone. All of these things you tell us we need to do aren't in the Scripture. So we're not going to do them. We're only going to do what we can believe God would bless. So that is a very, very important concept. And, I'm, and in my sermon uh, from Luke's, uh, in, during the application, I'm going to go and reinforce what we just talked about by expounding for you Ephesians 2 and verse 10. I was studying that. I, I, I was looking for applications uh, about discipleship and I mean, it's a pretty tough message I got when it says, after you've done everything that you're supposed to do, then you say, I'm an unworthy servant. I've only did what I was supposed to do. I say, wow, that's a tough. Um, we need some hope that God's going to make us the servant we ought to be. Now, what I found this week was Ephesians 2.10. I have a new set of commentaries in my logo system. That's the only thing I want to spend money on anymore. <laughs> I don't want a new boat. I don't want a new golf club. I don't want golf balls. I want more commentaries for logos. Um, and I was reading one from the Word series, and I'll, I'll quote it for you in the sermon. And it was, it's amazing. I never looked at it this way. Ephesians 2.10 comes out of Ephesians 2.8 and 9, salvation by grace and faith. And God ordained before the foundation of the world that we would be his workmanship. So I started thinking about that promise. He ordained that we're going to walk in those things. 
Now, that gives me a lot more hope than thinking about how pious I can be. (laughs) I trust God. Okay, let's pray and close this. Thank you, Lord, for these promises. And you will, we know, always, always keep your promises if we come and believe them in faith. And that's what we want to do. We want to believe you and then take action that we might walk in the Spirit and be loving, joyful people, full of your peace, that are kind-hearted toward one another. Help us do that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.